in this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast. One of the first comments has to be, well, when did having a sleep disorder become the new normal? We doctors are really not healing the body. We, we learn about things and we want to help. But the actual healing is happening when we sleep normally. I, at the time that I started to do sleep stuff, thought it was normal for a 42-year-old to be on four pills. I thought that was good medicine, preventative medicine. I don't see it that way anymore. Oddly enough, there are D receptors in these parts of the brain that paralyze us and in the timers, in the sleep switches. That means that D is a hormone that we make on our skin from the sun. In the 90s, they showed that there are vitamin D receptors there. Well, why would they be there? Because it's linked to our ability to hibernate, to sleep when it's winter time. Could that mean that all of us moving indoors, oh, when did that happen? Oh, starting in the 80s, we get sunscreen, and then we get television, and then we get computers, and now we have COVID, and we all move inside. Vitamin D has played a huge role in our physiology forever, and it does in every animal on the planet. But the second part is bringing up the vitamin D by itself does not produce perfect health. It doesn't even produce perfect sleep that stays. And the most important discovery was when you bring the D up and you improve the repair, what's happening in the background is you're asking for other building blocks. You're asking for the raw materials that we use to make those repairs. My name is Jorge Roman, author of Return to Human, certified health coach, metabolically flexible individual, and insulin sensitive human. In this podcast, I will relentlessly ask, why is there so much conflicting information about health, nutrition, and lifestyle? Is there more to the story than the mainstream? Or are those individuals involved with natural and alternative health simply a bunch of pseudoscientific quacks? Now, I will often have solo episodes discussing relevant scientific research around nutrition, supplementation, and powerful lifestyle practices. And I'll sometimes be joined by a couple of friends and co-hosts. I'll also be interviewing thought leaders from all walks of life in an attempt to discover what truly makes someone sick or healthy. I will do this with no agendas, no dogma, just truth, regardless of the fact that I will inevitably trigger some narrow-minded and myopic individuals. To live damn well doesn't mean living life perfectly. We're all going to die someday, so striving for ultimate health is a pretty counterproductive task. Instead, I hope to learn for myself and empower others to enjoy life to the fullest all while being disease-free, energetic, and in total control of their biology. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My name is Jorge Roman, and my guest today is Dr. Stasha Gomenak, a neurologist and researcher who was the first to explain the link between vitamin D deficiency, sleep disorders, and the abnormal intestinal microbiome. She is also the creator of the Right Sleep protocol, a simple and safe technique to reinstate a normal microbiome and to improve all sleep disorders. Dr. Gomenak, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Jorge, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, after, so I got introduced to your work because of Dr. Joel Gould, who now I've had on the podcast twice. Um, and obviously he, what he talks about is a big part of its vitamin D, a big part of its sleep, um, vitamin K and way, like way more than that also. But um, it really, to me, 
began to shift my attention to my sleep because that's something that I've suffered with for as long as I can remember. And as I started to watch your interviews, I was like, wow, she's describing me like waking up five plus times a night, taking hours to fall asleep. When I was little, I would end up on the floor very often. Um, I would talk in my sleep, often in different languages. And um, so now we're here. <laughs> so I wanted to start off with a quote that you have on your website. It says, see your doctor once a year, heal your body every night. So there's a lot to unpack there, but what does that mean to you? exciting that you brought that up because I haven't really looked at that in a while. Um, that means to me, one, one of the first things that's important to know when you enter the health field is all of us who have a certain framework in which we see the world in our health have our own conceptual framework. And I think to some extent that is determined by what our own physical experience has been. I was very healthy for most of my childhood. Uh, in retrospect, I really didn't have a sleep disorder. I also grew up in the times before sunscreen. And I grew up in California where you could exercise outside all, all year long. So that means my view of perfect health is really colored by my own experience. That means those of us who start life with many challenges tend to picture that as being normal. And one of the first comments has to be, well, when did having a sleep disorder become the new normal? Like we would never have been successful in covering this planet but like roaches the way we are, we're all over the planet. We're the dominant animal now. We would not have been successful in our current state. We cannot, can't eat this, we can't eat that, we don't sleep well, we don't feel good, we don't have any energy. So. I think picturing it as what was the normal before in the best of all possible circumstances at a time when humans were fighting not to starve to death and fighting epidemics. So there's a really a, a, a way of looking at what our past history was and then saying, oh, is it normal for young children to wake up all the time? Really, it's not. But you have to look back in history because if you're standing in the supermarket line and you're telling your friend, that our kids wake up in the middle of the night and come into our bed and they say, oh, so do ours. You don't think it's abnormal and therefore you would never look for an answer for that. So to say, I like our doctors being there. I don't necessarily wanna take their medicines but I wanna see them every year and make sure that I know what I should do to, to have better health. But that we doctors are really not healing the body we we learn about things and we want to help but the actual healing is happening when we sleep normally okay okay yeah you know you said a few things there that really resonated with me because I as I've started to kind of go down the rabbit hole of health I've you know it's become very clear to me that really the primary purpose of you know most like general physicians is to um they're very effective at the acute. Um, you know, if you broke a bone or something, or if you are about to die because you have a bacterial infection, like great, that's what we, you know, that's, a, that's what modern medicine is, excels at. But the healing part, like you said, um, yeah, that, that's something that 
I mean, it's become very clear with, I think somewhere around like 60% of Americans have one or more chronic diseases. And, you know, as we're going to get into, a lot of them are probably linked to poor sleep or at least have them. Yeah. And I have to say that my viewpoint of, um, especially for, for that my viewpoint is very different now than it was when I was practicing medicine and, it, and it's happened slowly over watching what would happen to my patient using my treatment that I have available. It's not that any treatment I ever learned was wrong. It just that wasn't, it wasn't the whole picture. If I'm, if I have someone with an autoimmune disease like myasthenia gravis, and I use these chemicals that uh, affect their immune response and I'm successful, but I would like to see, well, I wouldn't want to stay on those immune suppressant agents the rest of my life. Would there be some other form of intervention that might reverse this process to the point that that person doesn't have an abnormal immune system anymore? That's a very different way of thinking about what we are, what our job is as a physician. And now I see the world as the time between 1945 and 1985 as being an example of a population living, let's say in the United States, the people that I have access to that are now grandparents, my grandparents' generation, who were, had enough food available, they were still rural, they still lived outside, they still raised their own food. They were actually able to have 10 children live to adulthood because we had immunizations, we had antibiotics, we had things that allowed them to produce crops that were able to feed 10 kids. You can see that, you can still see that in all of Latin America. You can still see women coming out of Northern Mexico that see me that actually raised 14 kids that, lay, that lived to adulthood. They had enough food that they didn't starve to death. They had antibiotics and they had interventions that helped with trauma and infectious illness. They had immunizations that took out many of the diseases that we don't see, therefore we're not afraid of them. That was a time when we can see humans get to their full potential. Now, then you move into 1985 and after, and those people were not on pills, even the elder, elderly people. So if you go into small villages now in Mexico, you meet some of the viejecitos that you don't, you can't tell if they're 85, 65, or 45. And it's only because they lived outside. I didn't right. have that perspective until I got into this D stuff. And then I would realize this guy turns out to be 84 years old. He doesn't have any gait disorder. He looks spry and like amazing. He's still digging in the earth with a stick. He mm -hmm. still has a milk buy. He still goes to the milk buy every day. They live in stick houses. Could it be that this is linked to why he looks so good? And really what we're seeing is he leads a good life for 75 years and then at age 75 starts to a slow, slow and then rapid decline where he has a sleep disorder. He gets, if you go to the doctor, he has hypertension. So he spends 10 years dying. We're spending 58 years dying. That's a really different way to look at it. And if we then put that, that way, that con contextual framework over what we're seeing, it's horrifying because that means that little kids are starting on pills. I, at the time that I started to do this sleep stuff, thought it was normal for a 42-year-old to, to be on four pills 
I thought that was good medicine, preventative medicine. Right. I don't see it that way anymore. And how exactly, you know, where was that kind of like eureka moment for you when you started to put that piece together? Okay, so I was, uh, I was doing regular neurology on half of my practice in headache, daily headache, and daily headache is very common in young, healthy females, teenagers, kids, and, um, and it's a very thorny problem because every single drug we have that prevents headaches, even if I get good luck with it, it wears off in a couple of years, and then they're back and their headaches are back. And by complete accident, one of my patients insisted on having a sleep study done. And that was in 2006, way, way before anybody was thinking that normal, healthy looking people could have sleep apnea. And I have a very chemical view of migraine. It's a genetic disorder. It has certain things that change our resting excitability of certain nerve cells. The fact that she could put on a CPAP device, she was not overweight. She was not an older male. So she put on a CPAP device once she, we found out she had sleep apnea and her headaches went away. So they hadn't responded to my drugs. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel kind of insecure. Like, wow, she strapped on this torture device and it beat out my treatment. How does that make me feel? I'm not that smart, obviously. There's another method here. So then I start to do sleep studies and all these young, healthy females. And the interesting part about that is that they were all willing to go. They feel tired. They may, they may have a sleep complaint. They may sleep and feel tired. Many of them woke up at 3 a.m. and couldn't go back to sleep or felt like their sleep was not as deep after that. And I had never been trained to look for that. And at the time, there was no literature about that. The idea of hooking young, healthy females with headache up to sleep disorders had not yet been published. And as I started to do many, many sleep studies in those young, healthy people and teenagers and kids, it took a while to realize that they were all abnormal and they were all abnormal in a way that was different than what we've been trained to look for, which was only sleep apnea. So I think we discovered this really tip of the iceberg, terrible end stage disease. This apnea was described in males who were post bypass surgery, sitting upright in the recovery room. So it's not, it's completely logical that they should call the pulmonologist because they just stopped breathing. So they put this machine on. That means the neurologists were late in arriving there, but it's the brain running this, okay? So many, many people have anatomic challenges in the throat and that's being pursued by sleep dentists. And now we're using CPAP devices and mouthpieces. But in general, the control of getting paralyzed in sleep which is mind boggling in and of itself. So I had to learn about that. So my pulmonologist, that's a little weird, but the pulmonologist who knows about lungs, oxygen is saddled with the explanation for why do people do badly when they have sleep apnea? So their explanation has to do with airway. Oh, they intubate people. They think about the airway all the time, lungs and oxygen. Their answer is formulated out of their conceptual framework, lungs, oxygen, et cetera. As a neurologist, when I'm looking at, well, my patients aren't stopping breathing, their oxygens are not dropping, yet they are cranky, they can't think right, they can't remember, they have daily headache, some of them have hypertension at age 32, they're sitting on my examining table with a heart rate of 110, 
even though they actually exercise all the time, their normal weight, my way of thinking about what might be wrong with them is different because my training is looking at a different part of the body. Mm -hmm. So as I get a consistent result, it took a long time to sort through it, but these are women, just don't, women, teenagers, and children who don't have rapid eye movement sleep or who have much less of the deep phases of sleep. That is run by the brainstem. It's in my field. It's not run by the aural airway. So that led me to look at articles about, well, how do we get paralyzed after all? I mean, and isn't that dangerous? That's really thought provoking. How can we stay alive and be paralyzed? And oh, doesn't that sort of suggest that sudden infant death syndrome is about this? This kid got paralyzed a little too long. And once you get into the anatomy of that area, it turns out you can actually paralyze your diaphragm and your chest wall. Well, that's pretty scary. Who's watching that? I just have a man right here who stopped breathing 60 times an hour. He doesn't wake up. He doesn't know that's happening to him. Right. How could we even be existent on this planet? The brain is so much smarter than that. That has to mean that the brain always knows, but something calamitous has just happened. None of the other animals on the planet are wearing those CPAP masks. This has happened focally to humans over the last 40 years. Does that mean we've had an individual epidemic that somehow is linked to this ability or lack of to get paralyzed? Is, have our brains all just gone bad? And if so, how did that happen within such a short period of time? And if you read the literature about sleep disorders all around the world, every place they put a sleep study center, all the sleep studies are abnormal. And that doesn't even take into consideration the people they don't send, all the people who can't sleep, they're completely ignored. That's as much a sleep disorder as sleep apnea or waking up a lot or waking up on the floor. So I got into this in a very, somewhat backward way and ultimately i was quite desperate because i'm reading articles that are describing this around the world i now have a thousand sleep studies that show that they are lacking in phases of deep sleep and they're getting paralyzed incorrectly i look at the basic science literature and say okay well here's where it's happening we have good science that shows it's right in these little cells in this part of the brain but what's wrong with them I was still operating in the toxin, brain toxin, pesticides, wrong food, we're poisoning each other. That's, that's the only dogma that is being offered at the time. Mm -hmm. And then in a series of accidental events, one of my patients turned out to have a B12 deficiency. I was reading articles that were looking at sleep in a single cell way, which is also quite peculiar because it's not one cell doing it, but I was reading these articles about how these pacemaker cells that start beating really the time where it formed in utero, keep beating their, your whole life. They never stop beating. They're the clock. They know what time it is all the time. Wow, how does that even happen? How do they repair themselves? They're continuously working. They can't say, hey, take it, buddy. I have to do this, you know, I have to fix my legs, you know, my cellular, whatever is keeping me running. 
So I ended up with a 18 year old girl. This is five years into it. So I'm, I'm using CPAP devices. I have sleeping pills. That's all I have. Mm-hmm. It's partially effective. It's very disappointing because even CPAP wears off. Three or four years into it, the person comes back and says, wow, this stuff saved my life. I wear my machine every night. But to tell you the truth, I'm back on my two uh, pills for diabetes. My blood pressure is going up again. I'm wearing it every night, but it's not staying away. So then I had an 18-year-old who wound up with B12 deficiency and a sleep study that showed 10 solid hours of sleeping, but never getting into deep sleep. No apnea, no stopping breathing. It's not an airway problem. She cannot make her brain get into the right phases. That B12 deficiency then led to testing D levels. And ultimately, oddly enough, there are D receptors in these parts of the brain that paralyze us and in the timers, in the sleep switches. That means that D is a hormone that we make on uh, on our skin from the sun And it has always been tied to our ability to to actually modify what we do with our body in winter versus summer. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly logical once you see it in retrospect. It's just not the way that humans stumbled into D. They stumbled into D from a bone perspective and then stayed there paralyzed. Big advantage to me that vitamin D is now on the front page all over the place for the immune system because D is used in hundreds of ways in our body. And one of the huge areas that's been really damaged by having D deficiency is the immune system. Right. Yeah. Um, definitely COVID times for me have shed a huge light on that. I, you know, I wasn't aware also of the profound effect that it had on the immune system. I really thought like, oh, vitamin D, bone health. It's like, no, vitamin D, metabolic health, vitamin D, gut microbiome health, as I learned with um, from your research. So yeah. And, and it's also what I'm hearing you say, it's a lot more complicated than, you know, sleep apnea, no sleep apnea or insomnia, no insomnia. It's like there's a lot of in between and it's a little bit more complicated than that. Today, I want to quickly interrupt this show to highlight two things which could possibly make your sleep even better other than listening to this episode, of course. Now, in addition to those root cause solutions that we're talking about with Dr. Gomanak, there's a few other things that I've done which have personally made a significant difference in my sleep. So number one are blue light blocking glasses. I get my glasses from Spectro, which is actually the first company I ever got blue light blocking glasses from. And these are great because they actually block 100% of blue light and even some green light. And those wavelengths have actually been shown to Uh, inhibit sleep and inhibit melatonin release. Now, next is magnesium. Now, I love magnesium for a wide variety of reasons, uh, one of which being it's known to be anti-anxiolytic, so there's some research showing that it helps promote calm in the face of stress. Now, it's also good for metabolic health. It's been shown to improve health markers like insulin sensitivity, blood sugar, and even high blood pressure. The problem is we're probably not getting as much magnesium as we could be. Obviously, check with your doctor, see if you have any medications, but this form of magnesium uh, from the bio-optimizers is something that I personally use and my family uses because it's simply one of the best forms out there. It's very unique in that it has all seven forms of magnesium. And that's important because different forms do different things in different parts of the body and they're absorbed differently. So since you're a loyal listener of the podcast, BioOptimizers is offering 10% off using my link and so is Spectra. 
just use the link in the description or use my code LIVEDAMNWELL, no spaces, and get 10% off your entire orders. Now, back to the show. Yeah, and at the time that, before I found D, I had already stumbled into this concept that, and this was just me babbling to my patients, you know, why would an eight-year-old stop breathing some of the time and kick his legs some of the time? Why would a perfectly formed eight-year-old have any sleep disorder of any kind? He hasn't been on the planet long enough to get goofed up. So what if, oh, I'm studying these cells that make us get paralyzed. And they do that by having a specific firing rate. So unlike the electricity that we use in the walls of our buildings that have a continuous supply of electrons that keep our lights on, when we do that in our body, to keep my arm right here, I fire the up signal at a certain rate and I fire the down signal at a certain rate and they match perfectly. So we want a static, perfect place, like perfect paralysis, which means I can swallow my own spit so I don't drown. I keep these muscles perfectly paralyzed so that they're open, but they're still paralyzed enough, or that my airway's open, but they're paralyzed enough to repair. So I don't chew, I don't thrust my tongue. I, all these things that I have to do, I have to get paralyzed in order to repair the moving parts. If I'm going to do that, that means I have to fire these cells at a certain rate. And I'm reading these really nerdy articles by this Swedish guy who's dropping these, he's got an, a little tiny hair-like electrode in a single cell that's firing at a certain rate. And then he's dropping these chemicals on, he's dropping acetylcholine or epinephrine or norepinephrine and he's watching the firing rate. And I think this guy is watching this cell and that's the cell that's misfiring in my patients. They're, they're actually wobbling between two extremes. Instead of staying perfect, they're going, uh-oh, a little too paralyzed. What does that look like? Oh, this closes up. Oh, ooh, we go a little bit to the other way and we kick our legs. That means there's a specific place and a specific set of cells that are wobbling, but I have no reason why they're wobbling. But that's the way I'm thinking about it at the time that I stumble into this vitamin D stuff. And that means, oh, this is something that's consistently low. So I ended up testing vitamin D levels in about 500 to 1,000 people who I had sleep studies in, who I knew had sleep disorders, and they're all low. And now there's this guy who published the very this amazing thing. He's looking right at these sleep switches. He's already done these experiments. In the 90s, he showed that there are vitamin D receptors there. Well, why would they be there? Because it's linked to our ability to hibernate, to sleep when it's winter time. Could that mean that all of us moving indoors? Oh, when did that happen? Oh, starting in the 80s, we get sunscreen. And then we get television and then we get computers and now we have COVID and we all move inside. Is there a time linked parallel of the epidemics of ADHD, of chronic fatigue, of IBS? Yes, there's a time linked epidemic of many things. And then over time, it becomes clear most of the diseases that are chronic illness are back. When you think about it in the right way, they're linked to poor sleep. 
That means there's an array of physical manifestations that we're seeing in our population that all come back to, oh, what if our sleep went bad starting in the 80s? What will we see? And then there were all these other things that I really didn't have an explanation for that happened when I started to use the vitamin D. And then, oh, this is unsettling because things get better, but they also get worse again. So there were a series of events that happened in my patients where the reason why you have me on this podcast really is because I have a website. And the reason why I have that website is I did vitamin D in my patients. The guy who wrote the original science, Walter Stump, and I wrote an article in 2012 saying, gee, there are vitamin D receptors in these cells, the sleep switches. And oh, could that mean that there is an epidemiology link between our bad sleep of many kinds and our low D? And let's answer that by, oh, I have a thousand patients who I've brought their vitamin D level up to over 60 and their sleep got better. So there's a clinical observation matched by scientific observations on the cellular level. And it was pretty easy and pretty clear that it made a big difference. Now, the important thing to know, the most important thing to take from this is it failed soon after that. A year later, all of us have vitamin D levels in the 60s range and our sleep is going bad and we're starting to have pain and feel terrible. That is the most important message. Vitamin D is not the message alone. Vitamin D has played a huge role in our physiology forever, and it does in every animal on the planet. But the second part is bringing up the vitamin D by itself does not produce perfect health. It doesn't even produce perfect sleep that stays, okay? Just like the CPAP device failed, the D failed too. And the most important discovery was when you bring the D up and you improve the repair What's happening in the background is you're asking for other building blocks. You're asking for the raw materials that we use to make those repairs. I don't want my patients to just lie there in bed unconscious. That's not the point. The point is that I make these repairs that my body wants to make while I sleep. That requires other building blocks, which turns out to require the B vitamins. And it turns out that the B vitamins are made by the poop bacteria. Who knew? that is suggested all the way through the last 10 years by the writers about bees, because we know that the bacteria in the gut make B vitamins, but they just haven't been brave enough to come out and say, you know, the source of the B vitamins, all eight of them has always been the poop bacteria. They just weren't, they weren't completely convinced of that yet. And in my patients, what happened is the D stopped working I knew that their bellies had not gotten better. I thought that the D was gonna be a link to the making the microbiome better because there was a huge, maybe a third of my patients had had significant IBS type symptoms and the D had not corrected that. So the bugs were not back, at least by clinical observation. And then by a series of weird accidents, it turns out that the B vitamins are being supplied by the bugs in the belly and in order to bring them back, and we have to bring them back in order to get the sleep to actually recover. So to bring them back, you actually have to give them, the bugs need these B vitamins that they produce. So that's kind of a long, complicated story, but it's pivotal to recovering health, bringing the bugs back. Okay, so to clarify, 
it sounds like basically once we started to live indoor lifestyles, we started moving away from, you know, working on a farm or hunter gatherer uh, type of way of life. Um, the sunlight was a huge piece that we, you know, we miss now. And uh, when I had Dr. Gould on the podcast, he talked about it as uh, our vitamin D status, kind of like a human battery. It's like telling us, you know, you know, where our health is at. And that makes a lot of sense now what you're telling me, because yeah, like in the winter, we would, our vitamin D would drop and then we'd go into hibernation, we'd sleep more. And yeah, we were just, you know, living a winter lifestyle. Um, and so you mentioned that the vitamin D level should be somewhere around at least above 40. Is that right? So my publication with Walter was about what is there a vitamin D blood level, not a dose. Right. That distinction is really important. Is there a vitamin D blood level? If I say everybody in my practice has a low vitamin D, then the next question is, is that linked to the sleep disorder? Here are these receptors in these cells that run our sleep. Is it possible to document that there's a vitamin D blood level in a bunch of people that then leads to them saying my sleep is better? It's a very simple question. And that blood level is 60 to 80. And that's still been very dependable over the last now 12 years. That is actually not the same question as what is the ideal vitamin D blood level or what is the natural blood level for hunter gatherers who have never moved indoors and never developed a sleep disorder, okay? So there are two separate questions. People who are free roaming still outside have usually have average blood levels in the 40s range. Mm -hmm. But the next question that those of us who are looking for the ideal would like to ask of that tribe is, that's a mean or a um, average level. What about the best performers in your tribe? What's their D level, okay? And if we've averaged everyone of all ages, we've just averaged in the elderly people who are not making D as well. So the next question would be, if you wanna look for an ideal, then you have to ask a few other questions about those hunter gatherers, okay? So that's one population that's never gotten sick yet, okay? Then there's another population. And the question there is, once I've been deficient for X number of years, anywhere from five to 50 years, mm -hmm. and I've built up a set of diseases or a set of incomplete repairs because I haven't slept well, do I need to bring my D level up a little higher in order to supply an ideal blood level for fixing a sleep disorder? Right. To me, that was the question we were asking. It does not necessarily imply that anybody who has nothing wrong with them should be supplementing D or should be running their D level to a 60, okay? Right. So having said that, then it turns out that 60 to 80 for D is not enough to fix what we have happening to us, which is a chronic sleep disorder over years. You really need a D level 60 to 80 and a normal microbiome back again in order to complete that process. Okay, okay. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense because on your website, you explained that the lower limit of vitamin D is 30 nanograms per milliliter, but that just means you don't have rickets, which is, you know, it's great, but not sick is far from being healthy. And again, it's, 
Um, not only that, it's like, okay, we need to redefine the limits because if you've had a sleep disorder, you know, you, it may need to be higher or lower. And I, I personally feel like, especially in young people, the biggest intervention we can make is by focusing on women who are getting pregnant now and their infants and in children. If we prevent this deficiency state, then we don't have this chronic illness. If we start to focus on the fact that it is never normal for little kids to wake up in the middle of the night, never, unless there's you know, a lightning strike or something. So that is not normal physiology for them to wake even after a, age four months, they start to sleep through the night if they have a good helical. Also, if the child is born to a woman who has a D-level of 60 to 80, and she's already brought back her microbiome, she's now giving the B vitamins in the correct dose because the correct dose was what the microbiome, the normal microbiome generated. That means that child is supplied with the right chemicals to start doing a sleep-wake cycle at 30 weeks. Mm -hmm. In utero, at 30 weeks, the child starts to sleep with the mom and wake up when the mom is awake. That means when they are born 10 weeks later, they already have the beginnings of a normal sleep-wake cycle. If we then take those children and say, okay, we're not going to tell them they can't go out in the sun. We're going to try to maximize what the sun exposure we have. And keep in mind, in the past, children were out of school for three to four months in the summer because they were actually rural and they needed to be used by the family to help them with harvesting, et cetera. So our sun exposure now, even in the summer for children is minimal in comparison. Anybody who camps, when you go camping, you come out of your tent and you're in the sun the rest of the day, unless you're into a tree, okay? It's a very different experience. So even though I think I'm an outside person, I love being out in the sun. In the summer, I'm in here. I'm sitting in front of my computer. So our perception of how much time we spend in the sun is distorted. We really aren't in the sun very much. If we can intervene in ways that still are safe in terms of not burning our child's skin, but still trying to generate their amount of D and then attending to the fact that really we're indoors for another 10 months, that we're gonna to have to supplement a little bit but we try to use the natural um, amount that we have. I personally think that the most important part is to prevent this from happening. Make sure that the D level in the newborn and in the children is above 40, because that's really all you need to establish a good microbiome. And then what, attach your kid's sleep to what season it is. Attach this, just be observant. Oh, every March, my kid gets a couple of bad colds, is up, you know, coughing in the middle of the night, can't sleep through the night, is whiny and tired in the morning. Attach those two observations and start a little supplement of some kind that you can actually see, oh, I'm only doing X amount and I'm only doing it between January and April until they go outside again. I personally am not in favor of supplementing the whole population. I don't think that that's the right way. I think we need to attach our observations of our children and our adults to try to prevent this before it happens. 
Now, I want to transition to the microbiome. You know, you started to mention a little bit, but it's for the listeners who don't know, it's essentially the microbiome is the collection of fungi, archaea and bacteria, which I mean, it's linked to virtually all aspects of health from, you know, our cancer risk to neuropsychiatric disorders to metabolic disorders, and of course, sleep. So what is that role that it plays in our sleep? And how does vitamin D get linked in there? Jorge, what a great introduction. So one, the whole concept that these, this other population, you know, that all these bugs, all these creepy things that we've been told are bad for us, viruses, fungus, bacteria, they're living inside us. It turns out they're talking to us, that they're integrated into our nervous system Lucky for me, those ideas have sprung out of the GI literature and the science literature so that when I stumble into, whoa, this is weird, they just got their microbiome back, and I'm sensing that not from doing poke cultures, but by watching their sleep and their pain. That was very peculiar. Now, I got to that place by accidentally doing things wrong, but ultimately, your bugs are talking to your brain. You have the right foursome and it was always this way. The dinosaurs, so 500 million years ago, the dinosaurs had bacteria inside them. Our system, our engineering diagram that allows us to sleep normally was designed before that. This is so unimaginably old. The bacteria were here for billions of years before that. They were, they were trading these chemicals with each other. So when you picture it from an evolutionary standpoint, that means that one, we should, we should look at the stories that humans make up as just that. We're observers of living things that we didn't make, okay? Everybody who comes to your website thinks, I wanna get healthy. You know, if I can just say, who created refrigeration? And I can know everything there is to know about my refrigerator. I can, I can look at the model number. I can tell where it came from. I can do everything about the history of refrigeration. Wouldn't it be normal to say, I should be able to do the same thing about my body? That's a completely reasonable request. Yet humans did not make this. We're so impressed with ourselves that we think that level of knowledge of that refrigerator is available to us about our body. It's not true. We are observers of these systems. That means humans make up stories to explain things they see. And every few years, that story is now realized to be total fantasy. And then the next story comes to the fore. That means these stories, if they make a difference in how you feel, they might be right. Mm -hmm. But they're never the whole thing, okay? So stepping back for a moment, what happened to me was, I'm not a GI doctor. I don't know anything about IBS. I'm trading stories on probiotics. I'm taking probiotics. I'm spending 60 bucks a month on probiotics. But their bugs are not getting better based on their IBS symptoms. They're still bloating, they still have pain, et cetera. I thought like most MDs, like a miracle drug, D is gonna fix everything. Well, it didn't work. Okay, it worked for a while and then, uh oh, 
not unexpectedly, it's one piece of a huge complex system. That means what happened was one, the D was perfect, the sleep got better, but now the sleep is failing. Their IBS did not get better. Walter Stumpf had written about the D being completely attached to our GI tract. But remember, he's thinking about vitamin D receptors. So he's looking in the intestinal cells. He's looking for, he's looking at our genetic material. The idea of the microbiome playing a huge role in our body's physiology has not even been broached yet. That's not even a concept. So he's saying the GI tract and our metabolism will be varied with the seasons. So I thought the D would bring it back. It didn't. My patients didn't lose weight. They were, I thought they were obese because the D was low. The D got to be perfect. They're outside walking every day. They're exercising. They feel better. They don't lose weight. Then the third thing is by the end of two years, they all have more pain. I have more pain. My sleep is going bad. Their sleep is going bad. Something else is missing. And then by accident, it turns out they're missing some B vitamins. Well, why? Their diet hasn't changed. I'm, it appears that I'm forcing them by asking their body to make more repairs and forcing them in a B vitamin deficiency state that it's not something that occurred to me. A patient brought me a book and said, here, this B vitamin plays a big role in sleep. And she brought it to me because she knew I was a fanatic about sleep. And I was like, okay, we're all desperate. I don't know what the heck is going on. Let's go get this B vitamin, see if we sleep better. And it was when you did it correctly, when you did it incorrectly, we all got insomnia. When you did it correctly, insomnia and agitation in a day, like in hours, that was really weird. Then if you get the dose right, we feel calm and our pain goes away. So in the background, it turns out, oh, that suggests that there's a B vitamin and it looks like this B vitamin is only made by the poop bacteria. And that's kind of concerning. That sort of means that these bacteria are making an integral part of our nervous system. And they're making it at a specific minute by minute rate that our biology is directly linked to. It makes a B vitamin, so the bugs in our belly make a B vitamin called B5 that has been completely overlooked that actually is meant to make us alert, rested, calm during the day, and then sleep normally at night. And it works with D in synergy. These two pieces are integrally related to making acetylcholine. That took a lot of years of piecing it together the science, but in retrospect, that means that this microbiome supply of the B vitamins is one of many pieces that the bugs are supplying to the normal function of our nervous system. Only one of many, the endocannabinoid system that you haven't mentioned yet, but you're really smart and you obviously are probably talking about that too. The endocannabinoid system is part of the nervous system. It turns out the raw materials that become our endocannabinoids, that become our nervous system hormones that we've stumbled into because of this plant marijuana. And again, humans are just nuts. They, they decide that something is, not, is bad for you when they don't realize that it's part of our normal nervous system. So we've spent all this time vilifying marijuana only to find out it's an integral part. These chemicals that we, when we ingest marijuana, these chemicals are related to the way our brain functions. That's why we have psychological effects from them. 
it turns out our nervous system is dependent on what the bugs make for day-to-day -day function and development in both in utero and during childhood. That means that the piece that I contributed is in order to get back normal sleep, you really need to have these B vitamins that are being made in the normal amount from your microbiome. Plus, if there are bad things that happen to you during development, like your endocannabinoid system isn't right, you may have to draw in that piece. You may actually have to patch together the things that you've been deficient in. And there are many other things that the microbiome has always been responsible for absorbing out of our food. So even though I am not in agreement with the value of probiotics, in my hands, they haven't worked to do anything. So that literature, I think, is pretty worthless. But the second literature is, in normal physiology, we feed our bacteria, and then they feed us. They have always been the intermediary. When you don't have the right ones, looks to me like you don't absorb iron, iodine, copper, zinc, all these little tiny cofactors that are in your food, you are not able to use your food in the normal way. So that literature is really valuable. And ultimately the people that wind up with me are wondering why I did paleo. Everybody tells me that improved their health. It didn't do jack for me. I did keto, it did improve my health. That means if you don't have these fundamental pieces right so that your microbiome is the foursome of phyla that make us healthy, you will not see those effects. Once you get them back and get your D where it's supposed to be, then you'll start to see really strong modification of your performance related to these changes in diet. Okay, so vitamin D, at the beginning, it works for a while, and that serves to kind of, in a way, kind of feed the gut bacteria so that you can start to bring them back up, the good ones and not so much the bad ones, but then you... No. No. That's not what I want to convey. Okay. I did it by accident. Okay. I gotcha. thought like most physicians that D was going to be the answer to everything. Okay. And instead what I got was, uh-oh, because of my lack of understanding of this in, the, in its true complexity, the D by itself was not what the bugs wanted to come back. The D was one component. We now have the first article in 2020 that actually adjusts D supplementation in humans and then measures what species result in the belly. So there's now scientific basis in humans for that hypothesis. At the time that I wrote about it, it was really a hypothesis, okay? D is a cofactor for the growth of bacteria in our belly. And I based that on the fact that our belly went bad at the same time we lost sleep. So that both epidemics started at the same time. But my observation was any improvement in D by itself failed after a year or two. And badly, what resulted was not only did the sleep fail, but other things started to show up. Painful things started to result from using D by itself. In the background, it appeared that I had actually forced people from just being D deficient to now being D and B deficient based on the clinical burning in their hands and feet, joint pain, inflammatory state going up, there were several things that looked like, gee, am I making them B vitamin deficient by asking them to make more repairs? And how did that happen anyway when their diet didn't change? If the bees were really supplied by the food, their diet didn't change. 
What if we need to think of it in a different way? What if their bugs are bad and therefore if those bugs have been supplying the bees all along, I'm trying to ask for more bees from a population that's not supplying them. Because I got into this B vitamin world and I gave B100, which is 100 milligrams or 100 micrograms of each one of the bees. So it's a B complex. It's all eight bees. These four phyla of bacteria have always traded eight chemicals. So they hang out together because it's to their own advantage. This guy makes thiamine, this one makes riboflavin, they trade them. They all actually do better when they hang out as a foursome. That was the foursome that was supposed to be inside us. In order to bring that back in someone who's been depleted and has the wrong microbiome, you have to supply what all the good bugs want. What they want is a little bit of D and a lot of Bs because they are no longer right next to their buddy that had thiamine production. They're now piles of poop away. They're the minority and they're hanging out in the corners. If you flood the GI tract with B100, that gives bees in large doses, these chemicals, these eight chemicals were always known first as bacterial growth factors. That was their first description. They are easy little simple chemicals that bacteria make and trade. If we flood the GI tract with D and B100, then what we get is the favorable, we're favoring the growth of these particular four phyla. We're probably favoring other viruses and all the other things that you described. Once they grow back, then we have to recognize that they were always the normal production team. They have produced eight chemicals that we absolutely need for every single cellular repair. That means at the end of three months of taking D plus B100 or B50, you have to stop that supplement because all of a sudden you're on twice the amount, your belly's making some, and uh-oh, I'm still taking this extra, and now I get agitated and insomnia. So in okay. order to bring them back, they need two things. Those two things now over a period of 10 years are consistently effective. If you get your D over 40 and you take B50 or B100, we may or may not have time to go into that a little bit more, mm -hmm. then your bugs will come back and you must stop it at three months. Okay, so vitamin D is a growth cofactor, but it's not the only thing that you need. Um, exactly. And then you can become vitamin D or, or B vitamin deficient by having vitamin D alone. Yes. How and does that's that what work? Makes me, that's why I have a website. So what happened was I'm giving D by itself and I'm measuring D levels over a long span of time. And my focus is how's the sleep doing? Mm -hmm. So somehow we are all failing together. So I'm doing the same thing my patients are. I'm failing at two years. They're failing at two years. And then two gals walk in with burning in their hands and feet. They, that is an extremely rare occurrence. I am a neuropathy expert. That was my level of training, my subspecialty within neurology. Burning in the feet is not uncommon now. It's quite common, as a matter of fact. It's growing in frequency. We see it on television all the time. But burning in the hands and feet is pretty rare. And I've only seen that a few times in the 30 years I was practicing. And it was usually related to B12 deficiency, or at least B12 supplement would make it get fatter. 
these two gals are young, healthy females. They don't have anything else wrong with them. They don't have diabetes. They're already on B12. Well, and they're asking me why they have this burning in their hands and feet. And I'm like, oh, that's really weird. Why would two people who have nothing in common except that they're with me and taking D for two years have this event? All of our sleep is failing. And a woman walks in the door with a book about B5. She brings it to me. It's published as the healing power of pantothenic acid for rheumatoid arthritis patients. It helps their pain but it also helps their sleep. That's why she brought it to me. And so for only one week, I gave out what the recommended dose of pantothenic acid was in this book. And I recommended that people pick up the 400 milligrams of pantothenic acid. And because I don't know anything about these, because I'm an MD like everybody else, and I've been taught they're not important. I say, well, you know, in medical school, school, they said, if you take one B, you should take all of them. I had no idea why, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm standing at the health food store, I'm looking at all the B complexes and I'm completely overwhelmed because every single bottle has a different combination. So I find this thing called B100 that has 100 milligrams or 100 micrograms of each one. It's got all eight. I'm like, okay, it's got all eight. I don't know what dose to give, I have no idea. So I pick it up, I take it myself and I give the recommendation that these patients that I'm seeing who I've been doing D for two years, now have new pain and new sleep interruption, that they should take that combination. And by the end of one week, I realized that my restless leg syndrome, which is my sleep disorder, is terrible. And I realized that this is, again, a mistake in the dose. Clearly, this B5 has made my sleep worse. So I stopped the 400 milligrams. I take B100 only which has a hundred milligrams of panathenic acid and my pain goes away in like a day and my sleep is better. I'm like, this is really peculiar. One, these are not innocent chemicals sitting on the shelf at the health food store with no bad outcome. Mm -hmm. Two, now I'm anticipating all these patients that I've given this recommendation to are going to come back and yell at me because there's something different about being on D for two years. Something has happened biochemically in me that means I can't tolerate 500 milligrams. I got worse. 400 milligrams is sitting there on the shelf at the health food store, and it's the recommended dose throughout the industry. So my patients start coming back, and in fact, they do start to yell at me, and they say, this stuff, this 400 milligrams, it nearly killed me. I was immediately agitated, revved up, anxious, felt bad. I got insomnia from it. Some of them fired me, but some of them said, I stopped the 400 milligrams and I took the B100 and it was like a miracle. Like it all went away in a day. And I was like, that's what happened to me. What, what's up with that? That doesn't make any sense. These are supposed to be benign extra chemicals that we don't need. This B5 turns out to be a chemical that's running everything. If you have already taken D, you have this enzyme that makes this neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. The D is making choline acetyltransferase, the final enzyme in this neurotransmitter. That's why it goes up in the brain. It has an immediate effect. It really does make a neurotransmitter. If you've been taking D and you've actually asked your body to get ready, because that's what the D is doing. So, okay, we didn't have enough of this, but now we're going to make some 
it's asking for more of this raw material that actually makes coenzyme A and acetyl-CoA. B5 becomes this raw material that's used to make acetylcholine. That means as I take D over time, let's say I start at 2000 a day because I got scared by COVID. Five years later, my D level is now in the 60s and my sleep is better for like two months. In the midst of this, I can't tell that. Mm-hmm. And then in the third month, my D is setting up the body to ask for this B vitamin. And I haven't brought back my microbiome. So I don't actually have a supply. And B5 doesn't come from anything in the diet. It's never come from the food. It is only from the bacteria. So over a five-year span, I've slowly increased my D level. And five years after I started, okay, no one's ever going to associate these two. Five years I've been taking 2,000 IUs a day. And then all of a sudden I start to have burning in my feet or I start to have unexplained back pain or I start to have really bad sleep again. That means that I've really pushed this person by using D that seems benign, it's not gonna hurt anybody, can only do good. I've actually pushed that body into a state where it's now B vitamin deficient with no one around that person to explain what they're experiencing. That's why I have a website. I saw these horrible things happen to myself and other people where D is being used by itself. Our way of thinking about D is very wrong. It is, the literature is very flawed. Watching its interaction with the microbiome, thank God has finally got some scientific evidence to support what I saw. But the fact was that my patients had these things happened to them. It wasn't one person, it was 40 people out of 50 that started to have joint pain together. That's creepy. That means I'm actually doing something that's resulting in a bad outcome two or three years from now. They wind up going to the rheumatologist and then they come in to see me and let's say they haven't seen me for two years and I say, you know, I hate to tell you this, but I think that my giving you D was playing a role here. I want you to take this B100 stuff. It'll blow your mind, but your pain will be gone in a month. There was another piece that was happening in the background. That means anybody who steps into taking D, they really need to understand this a little more in depth. And unfortunately, medicine is late in coming to this table. People like you and other Thought influencers who are interested in health have come here first. That means there's a confusing state for the layperson. Who do I believe? My doctor minimizes this importance. I'm stating things on my site only because I'm the only person that's seen it happen consistently. And I'm afraid for our population if they don't know this information. Yeah, wow. Um, So one question about the so the microbes need the b vitamins in order to you know also grow in addition to the vitamin d um but they also then produce it for us yes that's really weird concept okay when they're let's just stay start it from the beginning okay so i have a baby we're taught that the baby's microbiome is established in the first three months and we've been taught that Kids who are born by vaginal delivery are exposed to the mom's microbiome, okay, on her skin, through her vaginal canal. 
they're exposed to the bacteria that are all over us. But it turns out also what we're really doing by supplying enough D through the mom's breast milk. So if a mom's D is over 60, her breast milk actually supplies enough D to have a normal sleeping, healthy baby. That baby's D level is only in the 40s, doesn't need to be higher. It is that D in a newborn that helps establish which bacteria, which maybe even viruses and other fungi, which of those become dominant. So that D is a preferential, it helps certain species come out of the background. And that means from the beginning, the ones that are, have the advantage in this D replete or well-supplied baby are the four healthy ones. So it's really about saying, oh, these bugs that have lived inside us forever, since the dinosaurs, really need two things. They need each other, that's why they hang out as a foursome, and they need our D. And in fact, you can look at it as we are equally trading. We supply D, they supply Bs. It's an equal trade. We both, we both benefit from it. That means that the B50 or B100 that you take, that I'm talking about, is the primer. It's the bee soup that makes those four phyla grow out of the background and then become the dominant phyla. As long as you leave, keep your D above 40, they will never desert you. This idea that antibiotics have destroyed our microbiome is incorrect. Why is that incorrect? One, we have 40 years between 1945 and 1985 where we took penicillin, tetracycline, and all these other antibiotics to treat us for various things, but we did not develop IBS. The second piece of evidence is humans did not make antibiotics first. We think we're so cool. No, the bacteria made antibiotics. We stole it from the bacteria. They're growing this little white fuzzy thing in a Petri dish, it's got these little black things on the top. And then the scientist looks in there and goes, huh, you know, there's this clear zone around. Does that mean that they are secreting chemicals that are killing their competitors so they can't grow into there? Then they take the chemicals out of there and they make penicillin. These are organisms that are making antiviral agents. They're making antibacterial agents. When they cover us, so it's not just the intestine. As soon as you get your intestinal microbiome back, they grow into your sinuses, they grow into your mouth, they grow in around your butt, they grow everywhere on your skin. They make sure that you have little chemicals on your skin that fight off parasites and other bacteria. That's how some people can live outdoors, be hunter-gatherers, and not die of sepsis or an infected leg. Miraculously, they were actually living to be 75 years old before the doctors isolated antibiotics. It's true that it was a step forward when we learned how to use them. But in actual fact, all the bugs that live on and in us help us. They make our immune system on the surface as well as in chemical steps be more normal. That ultimately means once you get your foursome back, you will be able to withstand antibiotics. You can take antibiotics when you need them. You don't have to worry about your bugs just going bad again. They will come back. They know they're okay with antibiotics. They make them themselves. Mm, okay, gotcha. So let's say mom had 
bad vitamin D status, like pretty low. And then the baby did too. Um, and, and within that three months of the, the developmental period, the colonization, um, that would set us up for the growth of bad bacteria. And also, is it possible to have those four phyla that you talked about to be gone? Yeah, they're not there. It's not that there's none. It's that they aren't dominant enough. And you have to picture them as like a river. You know, these are living organisms that are constantly dividing and making themselves and they get pooped out every day. It's a big river. That means you really want to be giving the supply that favors the good ones. Now, what we didn't realize was the good ones are really an organ of our body. That's a really weird concept. It's true they're being pooped out, but they're an organ of our body. They have all these responsibilities. And what we now see is billions of people walking around without a normal body. They're missing an organ of their body. Children who are being immunized against really awful diseases. Those are children who don't have a normal immune system because they don't have a normal microbiome, yet we're immunizing them with things that excite their immune system the outcomes of those immunizations were well known. We used them for four years. They were really safe. They did a really good thing. They took out polio, they took out scarlet fever, they took out diphtheria, they took out measles. But you're injecting these things now into kids who are really not normal humans. That means we need to reconstitute that microbiome before they get immunized. Their, their immunization should be held if they don't have a normal microbiome because their immune system is not gonna react in the same way. It's easy for me to say that, it's gonna be another 10 or 20 years before our federal agencies are able to wrap their head around this. But the good thing is the GI literature is clearly saying, this is an organ of the body. It has direct communication between the brain, between the immune system, and there it's, it's multi-layered. So ultimately, you really want that foursome to be there. And you really don't need to do it by poop cultures. You just need to know what to ask. Is this person got anything that suggests their immune system is right? Do they have asthma, allergies, eczema? Do they have any trouble sleeping? And then you have to define what trouble sleeping is. And then you can say, okay, if that kid has that, then you know the D and the microbiome are both not Correct. So with those immunizations that you were talking about, if someone has a, you know, an immune system, which is somehow, you know, disturbed, um, then it could be potentially a problem. They could have some, you know, serious side effects when they get it. Yeah. I yeah. think the anti-vaxxers are not incorrect. They don't, the, the problem with the anti-vax movement and the problem with the way that we're looking at it at the moment, those Parents know that their kid was normal at three and they got immunizations and then regressed. They're not making that up. What we haven't put in this equation is these are not the same humans where we practiced for four years and had good outcome. They're not the same. They're chemically different, especially their immune system is different. Then if all I offer to those parents is anger at the federal government. All the only choice they have now is to vax or not. What if we were to give them a path of saying, 
How about we bring back the normal immune system by getting the D right, doing D levels, getting the bugs back, and then actually have a way that we can say, what's this kid's SED rate or what's whatever measure you want to use of the inflammatory state, whether it's clinical, if you want to use laboratory and say, these kids with these parameters show to have a normal immune system, they're safe to vaccinate. That's a different paradigm altogether. And there's a, a level of complexity of that. If you take a 10 year old who's had an abnormal immune system, you know, you, you mentioned Joel Gould, he's very invested in this because he has an autoimmune disease that presented when he was 11. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time of not having the right raw materials. Our bodies were designed never to attack ourselves. Autoimmunity should never happen. It was never designed to do that. That means you have to be walking around the planet for a long time without the raw materials you need in order to, for that mistake to happen. That also means that putting back the immune system is not a magic of vitamins. It's not just getting the bugs back. You have to get the bugs back, you have to have the D right, and you have to sleep normally. The sleep is the repair. Sleep is where the immune system is repaired. Getting the raw materials is just step one. Getting that organ of the body to come back means that day one of having that organ back is the beginning of the work phase for that microbiome to do all the things that it hasn't done in the past. Now we know that has to do partially with acetylcholine, but the B5 that we've been talking about also makes cortisol. These bugs have direct interaction with the inside lining of the GI tract. That means all these food sensitivities. Humans have raised animals and drunk their milk forever. And they also made wheat and grains. That means this is not a fault of the grains. This is not a fault of the milk. This is humans have changed. Mm -hmm. So they can't tolerate that. And it's happened in the last four years focally. And you can point to the microbiome as being the major cause. You have to be able to put together a repair path to get all of those food sensitivities to go away. So that when I entered this with a focus in sleep, I got to see amazing things happen. It's not because vitamins are magical. It's because sleep is amazing. So that's a perfect segue because I wanted to ask you, we, we've talked a lot about now about, um, you know, vitamin D and its links to the microbiome and then how those affect sleep. But then how does sleep in turn affect the microbiome? That's a fabulous question. I really don't know the answer to that, but of course it's going to be leaked. Some of the really exciting stuff that's being published now that I really didn't even believe is one of my colleagues sent me some stuff saying, you know, it looks like there's probably a microbiome that grows in the brain. Like there are bugs growing in the brain. There are people who have suggested that for a long time, but others of us who are stuck in the same contextual framework, who, who have been told that the brain is sterile, couldn't really get our heads around that. But what if there are bugs that live in the brain that supply things for us? If we know that, my, that mitochondria are really independent living, really they're organisms, they have their own DNA, Mm -hmm. then it's not that far-fetched to think that there are certain little helper bacteria in order to have a normal mentation or normal brain functioning. You have to have this certain microbiome that grows in your brain. 
now that I've experienced a few things with my clients and myself, for instance, I got appendicitis about a year and a half after I brought back my microbiome. Now I had no GI complaints. I had, I had stopped eating garlic because if you lose certain species in your belly, the sulfur containing proteins in garlic, onions, cabbage, produce these awful smelling farts that clear the room, okay? That means I can't eat those things anymore. When I bring my microbiome back, I can now eat those things without any problem. But oddly enough, I got appendicitis a year and a half after doing that. Appendicitis is not a disease of old people. It's a disease of teenagers in early 20s. Now we think of the appendix as being the library. It's at a 90 degree angle from the tube because it's the library where we store all of our cultures. So you poop out the, you know, you get cholera, you poop out everything. No, we got a little library that's got all the guys that we need. And they go out and they're going, and they recolonize everything. That's not my idea. That's an idea in the literature. Now we're saying we really shouldn't take out the appendix. We should really just give antibiotics and let it go through. It looked to me like what was happening was all my right bugs populated my whole body. And then a year and a half later, they'd go, okay, we're going in there to the final appendix. There's some bad guys still living in there. We're gonna go in there and fight them out. And we're gonna take over that last bastion of the bad guys. And instead I get appendicitis. It's sort of the opposite of what you see in teenagers. If their biome starts to go bad, probably appendicitis is a manifestation of the good guys losing the fight. So things like that and things like my body odor came back. I hadn't had any body odor in 30 years. Now I have to wear deodorant and I stink. I'm like, this is creepy. This is not exactly what I had in mind, but it turns out that there are certain species that live in our armpits or live in our face. They do all sorts of important things. They help protect us, but they also have other sexual attraction. We don't see it that way anymore, but right. our smell was an important part of who we were. That means these guys are playing a role in so many levels, probably it's going to play a level, a, a role in sleep where the bugs talk to the brain and the brain talks to the bugs. And there's a two-way dialogue that I haven't even figured out yet. Okay. And one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, but is playing a big role in the background is as we look for answers for why our patients feel so bad, we have this huge ability to look at their genome. So we focused on these small variations in genome as though that's gonna answer what you need. I don't think that that's gonna turn out to be the most important part because my view of it is slightly different. It's true that we're each unique, especially when we're supplying these chemicals, we have to listen to our biochemical state at this point. But in actual fact, the bugs don't know your genome nor do they care. They have been here for billions of years. They've had their little things that they've done. They have their genome and we exist on this planet because we were able to form a biology around them. That means our biology is much, has come on the planet much, much later than theirs. We got mitochondria. They are probably even more ancient 
you know, they're a, probably a form of bacteria. That means these genetic variations that we're focusing on now are probably variations that in some state in the past had a slight survival advantage. Otherwise, they wouldn't be spread within the human population. We're focusing on them as mistakes, probably not mistakes. For instance, all the people that are writing me, asking me about their methylation single nucleotide polymorphism. Mm -hmm. I've had a genetic test. I have a single nucleotide polymorphism, a genetic variation, a flavor, not a mutation that hurts you, a flavor, they come in different flavors that suggest that I need a methylated B12 or I need a methylated folate, okay? That, since our knowledge of that is very recent, like 50 mm -hmm. years, it's very likely that the bacteria, when you have the right foursome, actually makes a huge rainbow of vitamins. We have artificially described eight of them. But in actual fact, if you look in the biochemistry literature of microbiology, you'll find that some of them make methylated cobalamin, some of them make methylated folate. The genes that we have made that need that have responded to the fact that that supply was there. Not in the food, in the bacterial supply. Interesting. So if I'm getting this right, it's, it's um, our genes have begun to, so there's like a gene microbiome, even like interaction that's going on between like the amounts of, I would suppose that that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. came second. We should always see that those foursome of bacteria, we're always here first. And we should always be aware that humans are really organizers. They get data and then they make columns. And they say, okay, only these eight things are vitamins, okay? If you look into in depth the, the pump that pumps in B5, that pump that's now been cloned and it's the same pump in the GI tract as it is in the brain, that pump has three things it pumps in, biotin, B5, and alpha-lipoic acid. Humans have just decided alpha-lipoic acid is not a vitamin, yet it's made by the bacteria and it actually competes for absorption with B5. That means it questions our whole definition of, okay, what's a vitamin and what's not? Do the bugs make these vitamins or not? We're about to find out that probably there are, I don't know, 500 growth factors or things that our body is using that are produced by the microbiome that we don't even know about yet. So the key is not focusing on vitamins will cure me. The key is focusing on the normal state of human beings for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years has been to have this foursome of phyla to live outside and to trade back and forth. And once I can do that, then I wanna go back to the naturopath and say, okay, I've got my microbiome back now. Let's look and see what those deficiency states are. And maybe I can fine tune them a little. It's not that I think what functional medicine and the naturopaths are doing is not important or not valid. It's that you will not get the same results if you are lacking this foundational foursome. And the probiotics don't do it. And the naturopaths and the functional medicine specialists haven't yet seen that the biochemistry of their patient is different when they walk in the door 
than it is when the, and the naturopaths and the functional medicine doctors are giving D and B100 together. That is one of their regimens. And they have seen miraculous things happen. There's no question. They started this. What they don't realize is the connection between you need to stop that B100 again after the microbiome is back. If you don't, the symptoms the patient walked in with will recur at the sixth, eighth, ninth month because now they're on too much and it looks just the same as too little. So once they get that microbiome back, then I think what's gonna happen is the patients who've done my right sleep program that gotten most of the foundational aspects of now I get my D level back into a quote unquote healthy place that I would have had if I lived outside. Now I've got my organ and the body back. Now I still have X, Y, and Z smaller complaints. My sleep is better. Now I'm gonna go fine tune based on what my genetic problems were. Now I'm gonna have a better result. Okay, so the main idea is it's not so much, it's not the vitamins, it, the focus is reinstating the microbiome, taking care of it so that it can then take care of us. And the way you measure that, oddly enough, is do I have good sleep now? Do I have good sleep? Am I restoring my body? And frankly, I have a, a, a path for you to follow. So these are ideas. These are not, okay, how do I do this? You just right. opened up these windows for me. Oh my gosh, this means I can accomplish everything. This is complicated. It, it's very complex. Also, there are certain things that happen in certain timelines. This is weird also. You know, a lot of the things that happen on the timeline, I don't really have a full explanation for. In order to follow this path of what I've opened as a possibility to heal yourself by getting better sleep, I have a workbook that determines for you, one, here are the basic concepts. And it's not the why. You and I just talked about why would I be interested in this? What's the possible outcome for me? The how to follow this is in this workbook. It's called the Right Sleep Workbook. Just today, I put a new version online that is not only, I want you to do this, this, and this, these specifics, okay? This is exactly what I want you to do, and this is the time frame in which to do it. And at the fourth month, here's what you do. You change something. You do this specific thing. And I tell you what I want you to do because those of us who didn't do it exactly that way suffered before you. So I give you a specific path to follow and also there's a modifier, no matter what I tell you to do, if you do it and your sleep gets worse, it means your body's not ready for that yet. And then I tell you, okay, back off and start little baby steps, okay? So there's a, another concept in the background, which is if I've been walking around on this planet for 25 years, only supplying my biochemistry one-tenth of the raw material that it was supposed to have, those processes to keep me alive, they found a way to do it with 110, or I wouldn't be here. Then I try to give what I think is the normal dose. And all of a sudden your body goes, no way, I feel really icky. You listen to that. You say, uh-oh, it's not ready for that. What I would have thought in the past would be, oh, Jorge has diff a different gen genome and he can't take these doses. What I've learned over time is, no, that's not it. You need those bugs back. Your body may not be ready for the full amount of bees that I just supplied you, 
That also means that you have to step into bringing that microbiome back in little tiny baby steps because your body has made modifications. It will still, it was made to have those foursome and those amount of bees, but it may take you six weeks to walk into that and feel good about it. So you have to slow down the process. That's also described in this workbook. And then the other thing that's a little weird about it is the things I'm asking you to monitor, you're not doing blood levels of anything but D. You are not doing B levels. You're not doing scientific drug, blood draws and measurements. You are actually listening to your own body. That's very different than what we're used to, okay? I'm asking you to use these challenges you've had for most of your life. I'm telling you they're gonna get better and then they're gonna come back. You didn't realize they were related to these vitamins before. You just thought you had eczema or runny nose or allergy or acne or back pain or constipation. You didn't realize they were related to vitamins in any way. Then you go in and play around with these vitamins and unexpectedly at the six month mark, all of those problems start coming back. And they all turned out to be due to vitamins. They're the same stuff you've been living with. So the only way you can be alerted to the fact that they've come back is by writing it down, by observing that I'm not constipated anymore. Because once the constipation goes away, you're like, hey, well, let's go out and do blah, blah, blah. You know, you're not focused on it anymore. Mm -hmm. So this workbook gives you the path to follow and really encourages you to journal every week as to what you observe. Because at the six month mark of taking D and getting it in line and bringing back your microbiome, these other things start to happen and your sleep will go bad again. You don't have time to get into that, but there is a workbook that shows you the proper path to follow. Okay. This is not for everyone. This is complicated. If you want to take this on, you really need to learn. So you have to be ready to learn some stuff. And then there's a path you follow. It works as your own personal assistant to take you through the steps of doing it. And that's on my website drgomenak.com. Perfect. I will include the links to the workbook uh, specifically and your website um, in the show notes for everyone. So I, yeah, I really love that approach, first of all, because um, I think it really kind of shows a certain level of almost like humility and like respect for ourselves, because often I, I feel like the, the, the consensus is like, oh, like medicine knows everything, you know, we, we don't even look at the subjective anymore. And I think the subjective can give us so many key pieces. Like for me, I'm so interested in nutrition and I've talked to several immunologists and I follow many of them and they say like, even the blood tests are very faulty. Um, but a better thing is like, okay, do you have acne showing up? Uh, your brain fog, you know, um, do you have bloating? Like what kind of foods are you sensitive to? So I, I love that approach of the subjective. It is the key, really. I, that is not the way medicine was taught to us. We have minimized each person's observation of their body, but it's the core. You know, really people who come to, to my site want to sleep better. That means they're looking to change their biochemistry. They don't think of it that way. And I didn't think of it that way. Like, how can we change our biochemistry? But really, if I'm telling you that all these sleep phases are run by chemicals, it's not that the chemicals from the outside, it's true we're supplying these building blocks, but they're only the bricks. The brick layer who makes the wall is the brain. It takes those little pieces 
and then repairs things and restores the functionality. Then once you're functioning normally, it will tell you it doesn't need these extra bricks. It's been put back together and they will screw you up at the end. You will have to come off the vitamins, except for D and except for D used cogently and carefully over time, you will finally, the other thing you'll notice if you do this for years is the amount of D you take as supplement over time goes down, 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 down. When you first start, you're deficient. Then you get to a homeostatic middle and you better be careful because you're gonna make all the same stuff that you had before come back with taking too much. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, so I know we don't have that much time left, but I did want to ask you a little bit more about acetylcholine because that's okay. something that we, you know, you started to talk about at the beginning. Um, so how- I love acetylcholine. I'm so excited you asked about <laughs> so, so I what, am yeah, thrilled exactly by biochemistry. It? Okay, so acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter. It's like epinephrine, okay? It's like adrenaline, adrenaline, epinephrine, we have those names, we have adrenaline and epinephrine in our vocabulary because we know about fight flight. Why do I always feel nervous? Why do I feel jumpy? Why do I feel like my life is under constant pressure? And then we're taught that we're in fight flight mode. That is reference to our, what is called the autonomic nervous system that is made up of two halves. One half is fight flight, that's adrenaline, noradrenaline. That makes our blood pressure go up, our heart rate go up. We've all experienced that when something scary happened to us. The second half is rest and digest. It's the parasympathetic, and it's called rest and digest because it, it facilitates movement of the GI tract, and it makes us calm, and it also makes us sleep better. The neurotransmitters of the sympathetic fight-flight side are adrenaline, the neurotransmitter of the rest and digest site is acetylcholine or acetylcholine. That chemical is actually deficient in most of us. We have actually developed a neurotransmitter deficiency state from having a low D and then wrong microbiome. It took me years to look at it that way. But remember how I told you I gave this 400 milligrams of panathetic acid and my patients came back and said, were you trying to kill me? It goes right up into the head and makes acetylcholine immediately. Like there's no controller, there's no supervisor. Why would that exist? Because in retrospect, it appears that the bugs are the only source and the bugs make it at a very finite dose every single minute of every day. Mm -hmm. And that chemical during the day is responsible for focusing, being able to be distracted and come right back. So the reason why ADD, ADHD is an epidemic at the same time as the sleep disorders in the same population is that that chemical is being used during the day to make us calm and focused and able to learn. As soon as you flip a switch at night, it's used to make you transition between sleep phases and get paralyzed normally. What would our population look like if we were acetylcholine deficient? Our blood pressure would be up, our heart rate would be up, we would have GI tract complaints. The GI nervous system is also playing a role in our complaints about bloating, diarrhea, constipation. It's not just the population, it's the nervous system of that as well. So it also turns out that the science behind 
are there certain diseases that are common now that are linked to acetylcholine levels? Well, yeah, Alzheimer's, duh, that's the prominent acetylcholine disease. Second is Parkinson's disease. Now we know they're in preliminary phases of Parkinson's before dopamine deficiency, where the actual deficiency is acetylcholine in certain parts of the brain. And all the dysfunction that we see of the autonomic nervous system, the part that we talked before we actually started recording was, there is a new system that's called the acetylcholine anti-inflammatory pathway that starts at the level of the brain. And it turns out that when they were doing studies on kids with epilepsy and they did vagus nerve stimulation, so they electrically stimulated this big nerve that is actually the main nerve of the parasympathetic system. They stimulated that nerve. What they saw was there was this big change in the blood level. And what they traced it back to was the vagus nerve talks to the spleen, the spleen releases T cells that then release choline acetyltransferase, the final enzyme that makes acetylcholine. They release this enzyme and they act like a hormone. They go through the, the tissues, they go up and down minute to minute. That means, oh, if the brain tells the spleen to release these, then that enzyme goes out to the tissues and is looking for the raw materials, B5 and choline or acetyl-CoA and choline to make acetylcholine. So now we know that acetylcholine acts not only as a neurotransmitter in the nervous system, it acts as a hormone in the periphery. That's why I saw these weird things happening. So I published an article in 2016 that was about, you know, it looks like D deficiency and the loss of microbiome leads to a pro-inflammatory state that leads to an increase in autoimmune disease, as well as multiple other things that we've linked to atherosclerotic disease. So now we see atherosclerosis as an inflammatory state. What's been difficult for the clinician is these are multiple different systems that we've put, like we put the neurologist on the acetylcholine in the brain and the spinal cord. And then we say, oh, there's an immunologist who's working in the immune system. One set of vitamins or an organ of the body, like the microbiome, is actually acting in multiple systems all in parallel. That means we see these multiple diseases happening and we can't get quite get our head around the fact that they all showed up because of a single domino effect in the background. Okay, From, from an MD's point of view, for me to say vitamin D at the, is at the root of all of this, it's ridiculous, okay? I did it myself. I got seduced by the idea of a single thing. Is gonna, but in actual fact, really, that's kind of true. D leads to a collapse of the microbiome. Then we have all these diseases. That seems like too easy an answer because that means I'm saying 200 different diseases all have as a root cause this background, okay? In fact, that's still true. What's weird about it is you have to look at medicine as in, in the reality of what happens in medicine. There are no drugs being sold by drug companies right now for a purple horn growing out of your forehead. Why? Because nobody's walking into my office saying, I can see this little spot right here and my cousin he has one that's this long and you better damn well get this thing not to grow.
because that seems to be happening around my neighborhood. If you look at it that way, you realize that we doctors make up these incredibly detailed stories, but in actual fact, we only make up stories about things that walk in the door. Medicine has always been that way. We walk in the door with a complaint. We have a physical thing that we measure. We take images of it. That means the diseases that have become epidemic in the last 40 years, uh, you know, it's not scarlet fever. It's not polio. It's not measles. Uh, it's not, you know, tuberculosis of the spine. There are certain diseases that have become epidemic. That means these are really are kind of linked to one single domino effect and it has multiple manifestations. Putting that picture back together again is very complicated. And ultimately, I don't think that the vitamins are the answer. The normal sleep is the answer. That means everyone who approaches what I'm doing also needs to think about, do they need a supervised sleep study? Do they need a CPAP device? Do they have a normal oral airway? Do they need to have that looked at? Do they need to tape their mouth? Do they need to have their ENT evaluate whether they only have one nostril to breathe through? Every single one of those things is about evaluating any single variable that could lead to normal sleep because normal sleep is really the piece that puts the body all back together. So if we don't have enough building blocks from the B vitamins or vitamin D or others, um, even if the vagus nerve is activated, would acetylcholine even be made? No, it's not made. It's not made in response to the, so the brain's trying to do what it needs to do. Right. It secretes these T cells um, and there are pieces of that whole puzzle that aren't put back together. And ultimately also there's some really deep questions about what about these other B cells? Like, Stasha, I hear that thiamine is a cofactor to make acetylcholine and dopamine. It's upstream from the B5. Does that mean that thiamine might be deficient in some people? Yes. So the thing that I think is, when you get back to microbiome, there are hundreds of things that we haven't even discovered yet that are happening in terms of the nervous system, the immune system, et cetera. There are many, many things where we thought we gained a level of mastery with talking about vitamin K or magnesium or whatever. Okay, that's not wrong, but I bet our level of knowledge is really pitiful compared to what it's gonna be 20 years from now. That means the core of this is still, can I get back to what I think is the, the basic foundation building blocks of what normal mammals, normal, multi-celled animals. It's much bigger than humans. We focus on ourselves, but it's really about group biology that's been on the planet for millions of years. Let's look at it through that lens before we decide whether or not we think we know everything and whether or not you know we're on the right path. So I, I really think that every time we intervene, one, always ask what your body says about it. You always want your body to say, my sleep feels great. And maybe I did X, Y, Z, and I need to tell Stasha about this thing that helped my sleep that adds to the body of information. Because the only reason why I have a website is I fell into a couple of things that haven't been reported elsewhere. It doesn't mean that's the whole story. This is not the whole answer. This is piece of the puzzle. I love, yeah, I love that you said that because very often in the health space and in, um, not, not really people that I've interviewed. I think I've gotten lucky with that. No one ever says this is the one thing, but um, 
you know, that's, that's a common idea that it's like, oh, this is the one health guru to listen to. And it's like, no, you can take the tr like little truths from everyone that you listen to. I agree so, with that completely. Yeah, I love that. Um, so we're at the end of our time, but I do want to ask a few little questions at the end that I ask to every guest. Um, so first, what is the most important lesson you've learned recently? Question. I think the most important thing I've learned throughout my journey is that these are all ideas that ideas are just ideas that we have to be open-minded and listen to other people's ideas. We state our ideas, we learn from others and we trade ideas. When we get too wrapped up in my idea is more valuable than your idea, we all lose. And that we're all making up stories. Humans are compelled. I think humans started to talk because they're compelled to tell stories. I think that was what made them want to speak. I don't think speech came accidentally. I think we are compelled to tell stories to each other. That means those stories are extremely valuable, but they're also viewing the world through a human's point of view. We're very human-centric. We have to we have to observe that. We have to be sure that we recognize that. Also, probably the second and right next to it, we are all primates. Primates are tribal and they live in groups and they're always interested in status. So when we talk about these ideas, there's this subtext of status. Is this other human at a higher status than I am or a lower one. And we do that in every part of health, science and human endeavor. And then we bullshit around and pretend like we don't. That is a loser for us because no human has a less valuable idea. They're all ideas. We can't stop being primates. We're stuck there. We'll always be interested in status. It's part of our biology. My guinea pigs, they have a status. There's always an alpha and a beta. Lions, the same. Every animal that lives as a tribal has that. But we can at least recognize it and we can try to minimize it as we talk to each other. Which books or scientific studies or any sort of literature would you make required reading for anyone interested in improving their health? I can't really answer that. I can't say that there's one single book or one overarching one. I would have to say the current status is that I really think that we're moving into this verbal interaction that I grew up with books and I'm still thinking in terms of books, but I really think that things are moving so rapidly that thought innovation and thought leaders in the way that you're doing it, I, I would listen to a lot of podcasts. I would listen to all different people's ideas. I'm not sure that books are going to be the future. I, you know, I've got one foot in the book library, front to back, A to Z. But as I do this longer, 
this is much more valuable. This is more flexible. It allows you to integrate new ideas that you learned last week. And what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Not to be so arrogant. I think I've gotten that answer a few times. Um, okay. I am very grateful to you, not only for coming on this podcast, but because of all of the wisdom and, and all the things I've learned from you, which have helped, you know, my parents, my family and myself. Um, so yeah, where can people find out more about you and your work? And Jorge, you are really cool and really smart. It's my pleasure to be here hanging out with you. Thank this you. is going to change things for everyone. You know, you're starting with a different a different way of learning and a different way of looking at the world than I started with. Um, so go to my website, drgomanac.com. Uh, I'm the only Gomanac on the planet because it's a actually made up name that was distorted on, you know, in a, immigration into the U.S. So if you get something like Gomanac and vitamin D, my website will pop up. I really encourage you to get the workbook. The workbook is what you need to follow this path. Um, and I really encourage you to understand the why. The why is in these videos. It's in written material on the website. Um, I'm about to do undergo a big redo of the website to try to make it easier to go into it and ask specific questions instead of having it in, in a book format, which is really the way the information is available now. Um, and I really hope for success for sleep and uh, better sleep throughout the whole population within the next 20 years. Thank you very much. And again, all of that will be listed on the show notes for everyone. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, thank you. If you like this episode and if you've liked some of my other episodes with other guests, please take the time to review this podcast on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful to me and getting this message out to way more people. Navigating the world of health and wellness is anything but straightforward. So if you're a little bit confused as to you know, what things are harmful, is this food good? Is this food bad? Well, spoiler alert, it's not that simple. However, I and many others have done the heavy lifting. So I put together a book called Return to Human, how modern medicine, the media, and the mundane have destroyed our immune systems and how to move back towards optimal health. The full version is available on Amazon. Now it's around 70 or 80 pages. And so it's really a simple guidebook that you can use and an introduction to all of the major aspects of health, which is why I think it's so helpful for people who are kind of confused and lost. Here's what I cover. I cover the top six aspects of health, which if compounded, if combined together and all of these things are done properly, then you can have amazing effect on your overall health. Because, you know, unlike what many health gurus claim, one thing will not make a healthy person. Multiple things will give you a 1%, a 2%, even a 10% if you're lucky, increase in your overall quality of life. So in the book, I share with you the six major aspects of health and what things in our modern environment are causing our immune health to be totally crippled and then also what we can do to live an ancestrally modern lifestyle which supports health. And it's not a medical recommendation. Of course, I want you to do your own research. You are responsible for you, but it's a great starting point if you're a little bit confused. Now, I understand that right now you may not want to dish out a few dollars, even though it is 
$3 right now on Amazon, that's okay. Because mindset is inextricably tied to your immune health, so your emotional state, your mindset, all of that directly affects how your immune system functions in response to a virus or bacterial infection and so forth. So I made that chapter 100% free for you to download. It gives you some very simple tools that you can use to reduce stress, to calm the nervous system, all in a way that's free or very, very affordable. Now, if you want that, you can click the link in the description, which says free download to chapter two, or simply head over to livedamwell.com. I hope you check it out. I hope it helps, and I'll see you in the next episode.